also, you know, we saw that with our business. So if you don't invest enough and you don't get the capital behind you that you need, you could miss the market too and you can let someone else take the market. So there's, there's risk on both sides of it. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today I have John Stoika from Certify, and I'm very excited to chat with him about his journey uh, to build his company to where it is today. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Phil. Glad to be here. So to start, can you please tell us a little bit about your company and what problem does it solve? Yeah, so Certify provides an agreement platform that enables you to collect a contract as well as a payment together. So we couple those things together. So historically, people would send a contract out, get it signed, um, and then request a payment after the fact. We coupled those things together and built a workflow around that. That's awesome. So yeah, so you were like solving the problem of having to use multiple tools because if you're going to send an agreement, you're usually going to request payment later and you're just trying to make that easier for people. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit more about the how the idea came about of building that product? Yeah, so it, it came from uh, some real estate business that we were in and we noticed that the contracts were kind of getting lost. Um, They're difficult to find. And even the contract execution component of it was time consuming. So this is in around 2008. So it was about seven years after Bill Clinton signed the e-sign act, which is essentially gave the legal equivalent uh, to an electronic signature to a handwritten signature. And that was, that was a big deal. So there was a flurry of startups that happened around 2000 and 2001, 2002, but they all failed. And we believe that the problem was, the reason they failed was because they're, solve, they're trying to solve the problem of I- identity. So making sure that the person who is signing the document is actually the person they say they are. Um, we thought the problem was more geared towards ease of use. So we thought that the most important thing was to actually make sure that the, the contract signing process and the payment process was easy. So that's how we came about the idea. And our first customer was a company called Career Builder. And the way we learned was we actually sat in the office with the sales reps and I'd watch them send out a contract and I'd watch them sit by the fax machine and verify a signed contract. And I'm like, well, how do you know that the person that you sent to is actually the sign or on here? And they're like, I don't. I just see a signed a signature on the bottom of the page and that's good enough for me. So I'm like, well, that's perfect. We could digitize all that for you. That's awesome. So, so you, you realize people were solving the wrong problem, that even the technology that were, people were using back in the day didn't solve that problem of identity. And... Yeah, exactly. And there's a, a lot of it's product market fit too, right? So the identity stuff is really important when you come to more sophisticated agreements or agreements that have uh, more collateral, right? Uh, there are more money, more monetary component to it. So so we felt, hey, look, if, you, if you're really going to kind of make it really easy to use and you can solve the problem for maybe the high velocity people. So people are sending out lots of contracts and their lower dollar value. And that's where companies like Career Builder came into play. So you say that you were in real estate before. So you're already dealing with a lot of contracts before you, you start this business? It was actually, I was in a manufacturing company um, and part of what we had was real estate. So that's where it was kind of coming from was a real estate component in that business. Yeah, but in that business, you have to deal with a lot of 
signing of agreements or, or that was something, was a problem that you found in the market, but you didn't leave that problem yourself? Yeah, the, I think the business itself, it was a problem that I had, you know, and it was, it was a pain that I was feeling. So, you know, and that's where a lot of these businesses kind of come from, right? I think that's where a lot of good ideas are generated. And then you got to go out to the market and typically validate it. So you say, okay, I'm feeling this pain, but are lots of other people feeling this pain. Yeah, I'm a big believer of founder market fit, even before product market fit. Uh, a lot of people don't believe in that. And there's like, it's kind of a hot topic. I would love to hear your take. Do you think you had like product founder fit or, or it didn't matter? You know, I think we had a product founder fit, but you're always a, you know, you're, you're always a function of all of your past experiences too, right? So, you know, all these little things that you do in your career and your life always lead you to hopefully founding your company or that big idea that you have. So I would, before that I lived in San Francisco, I was, I was working for a technology company. You know, we were doing actually web conferencing in 1996. So we were doing video and IP audio. We we're one of the first companies to do that. Um, and so that experience kind of taught me that everything was going to go on the web at some point, right? So all the businesses, all the business transactions that we have, all of our experiences will be web enabled. So, you know, I'm looking at this paper world and I'm saying, well, why isn't that digitized yet? Why is that not going to the web as well? So that kind of helped me as well. And then seeing it in practicality helped us. Um, and then we said, okay, well, let's go out and let's, let's find the early adopters in this market and, you know, see if we can, you know, change the way people do business. To kind of like paraphrase what you said, basically your life experiences uh, and what you were, you believe it made you the, the right founder for that company. Yeah, never undervalue your experiences, right? Wherever you're working, I, I've seen people who work at a beverage store selling alcohol all of a sudden get into the delivery business, right? And all these different components of it. So uh, whatever you're doing, whatever job you have will teach you something about a market fit somewhere down the road. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that. In, in my uh, own consulting firm, uh, we build a lot of SaaS products, and it's, most of the times it's an industry expert that comes to us. I know everything about Industry X. I want to build a SaaS for it. And when I, I hear that, I usually know it's it's going to be a success because that person really understands that market, uh, and they build the experience, like you say, in whatever job they were doing. So you decide to start the company. We talk about how you, your experience and... You sought the market opportunity, but when you decide to start the company, I know you decide to bootstrap that company. Uh, why was that? Why you didn't want to raise money? Why you decide to self-fund? Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, the last company I came from wasn't bootstrapped. So I was part of a company. We raised about $60 million. This is 96, 97, 2000. So that was a lot of money at the time. And I kind of learned that a lot of times the risk reward can get out of whack. So if you raise too much money too quickly, believe it or not, the risk of you not having a great outcome can actually be higher. So bootstrapping a business, if you can get product market fit, if you can get some acceleration, I think you're pretty likely to get a base hit or a double, maybe even a triple. Um, but if you're going to raise a lot of capital, you you, you got to be gunning for that grand slam. And so, like having that company, the experience, maybe you thought, I, I don't want to be under all that pressure. I want to like be kind of like more in charge. Could kind of like go deeper on that. Yeah. I, I, so I think at the end of the day, it really comes to time, right? Time frame. So if you raise capital, you need to compress your time, your time component. So. You now, instead of having a 10-year time frame to execute against what you want to execute, you got a three-year. 
And there's a lot of factors that may help you or may go against you. So you may have customers, deals are taking a little bit longer than you hoped. Maybe your products take a little bit longer. Maybe adoption's not where it needs to be yet. So you could you could potentially have a, you know, you could have the right idea, but just be too early, right? And I think that's what kind of happened to people in our market. And, you know, I mentioned that they passed the, the eSign Act in 2000, and there's probably about 100 companies that try to, you know, build electronic signature software, but the market just wasn't ready yet. So I think that's really important. So for us, you know, we've been around since 2008. It's been a long run. Um, but I, I would say that it, it came, it didn't come without a lot of trips, right, and stumbles. Um, and if sometimes if you have investors, they're not going to be as patient with those stumbles. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like you're able to to move more at your own pace and you're more likely to survive uh, because when investors give you money, they expect you to either become a huge success or die. They don't want your company to just be kind of like making it, right? So they, they do 10 investments and they know nine is going to fail and they're going to pressure the founders to either grow or run the company to the ground. And that's why I, I, I'm a bootstrapper myself. And, and I feel like the definition of success really changed, right? Because what is success for a bootstrapper might not be a success for an investor, but if you just stay longer enough, you might be just as big as those VC fund companies. You just are not trying to move at the pace, right? And then there's, you know, it's a counterweight too, right? So on the, on the other side of that too, you, there's risk. So, you know, we saw that with our business. So if you don't invest enough and you don't get the capital behind you that you need, you could miss the market too and you can let someone else take the market. So there's there's risk on both sides of it. Yes, I, I believe there's not like one right answer. Depending on what you are doing, the right answer for you might, might be, I need a lot of money because of the timing. Yeah, I have to move quick. Uh, depending on what you're doing, you're better off moving slower and be a little more patient. So yeah, I think you have to try to understand your business better and decide what you need. It's not just like, oh, because X did that. There's not like one way to get things done, right? Yeah, and I'm a big believer. The advice I give to a lot of people starting businesses is I think the first thing you should do is go read Peter, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. And I think there are lessons in there. Are Have you read that, Phil? Yes, I have read that book. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I I think it it makes a lot of sense, right? You pick a small pond, you go dominate it. And, you know, we were, I think the problem that we had was that we were, we really kind of, we had a solution that can solve a lot of problems for a lot of different people. And we really didn't have any success or start getting success until about 2015 until we verticalized the solution for a specific vertical. So now, for example, we serve the travel and hospitality market. We are the largest provider of e-signatures and payment solutions in the market. We have about 16,000 properties on our platform. Companies, our organizations at Golf and David Busters and Hyatt and Hilton and Marriott, they all stand rise in our, our solution. Now, that was our pond, and we've dominated it. And, it, you know, we've it, dominating a vertical um, there's a lot of different advantages to it. You obviously have sales and marketing advantages to it because your, your CACs will eventually become low over time because word of mouth spreads very, very quickly. Uh, but you also have a great moat around your business too um, because you're able to build it once and sell it many, many times. It's really difficult for a competitor to come in there and, and, and uh, obviously no matter how big they are. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I, that's the advice that I always tell people. Like, you have to understand what a horizontal market is and what a vertical market is. So maybe our horizontal marketing is you do a signature and payment. But what's your vertical marketing? And, and you're telling me it's, it's travel, it's company like Top Golfs. And when you are starting, you have to, to be in that vertical and dominate that vertical. Uh, we have built so many, like, CRMs and there's Salesforce, the big... 10,000 gorilla dominated the horizontal, but they can win a vertical because someone built a CRM just for the industry and they just, uh, they can't touch that industry. And that's kind of like an advice that I give people all the time. If you're going to build a product and you, you choose a vertical and as you grow, you, you can go in more and more verticals and it, eventually you might become a horizontal product, especially if you're bootstrapping, right? Because if you go back and if you want to start in the horizontal, that's going to require so much money. But if you go into a vertical, you're going to know where to find your people, uh, how how to communicate to your people. It, it's going to make a huge difference. But it's a huge challenge to find a vertical. So let's dive deeper. How did you find your vertical? How hard was you say it took a bunch of years? What did you try? What worked? What didn't work? So So let's talk more about that. Yeah, I, I think so. What happened was uh, so around 2013, 14, uh, we started to see that we we're either going to have to raise a lot of capital and compete with some of our competitors that did raise a lot of capital and go horizontal, or we're going to go vertical. And I always wanted to build a vertical software business. I never really wanted to build a horizontal uh, software business. I always felt that the vertical plays were much stronger over the long run. So at that time, we decided, hey, look, we're really going to verticalize this. We had a lot of different customers. We had customers in financial services. We had customers in real estate. We had customers in tech. We had customers in healthcare. We had all these uh, variety of customers. So I basically spent a year, um, <laughs> and I went out on the street, right? And I kind of went to a lot of trade shows. Um, I would talk to, so I'd go to an insurance trade show, for example, uh, meet as many people as I could there and just to, you know, put up a booth and see what kind of conversations we're getting. And, you know, I did that with probably about eight or nine different verticals. And, and there are some criteria that I had. One of, the, one of the criterias were, okay, has this market adopted any tool like this yet? Is there a standard CRM or a place of integration that I can integrate into? Um, and, you know, are, is there a big need for, for this product, obviously. And the industry that we found that kind of matched our criteria, there's lots of them, but the one that we picked was was hotels. Actually, it's hotels and medical. Uh, there's actually a vertical inside of medicals called home hospice that we picked, but we eventually decided to focus really just on hotels. That's awesome. So, so that was your first vertical, and then you, you started from there. And how much of your customer base, because you say you had customers spread out out so you decide to go in hospitality hotels how much of your customer base was the vertical that you chose when you when you chose um zero pretty much and i never worked for a hotel either so <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was out of your research after you went to other trade shows you're like okay this is where we're gonna go yeah it was it was it, it was pretty much zero and we kind of said well they meet the criteria for a market that needs this tool they will eventually adopt it and so we're going to have to work and get the product geared for it to make sure we have product market fit. And, and a lot of it just really came down the sales side of it. We just kind of, the next step was, and I'm a big fan of Jeffrey Moore. So Jeffrey Moore, um, he has a couple of books out there. If you're, if you're starting a business, I really highly recommend that you read them. But the big one is Crossing the Chasm. And he really talks about if you're going to go into a vertical, you know, how to really get through that vertical. So the, the first stage of the bell curve is the early adopters. Right, and then you have the early majority, then you have the majority, and the late majority. So now your your question is, okay, how do I find the early adopters in this vertical? So then we'd look at, okay, what is the behavior of an early adopter? And for us, it was 
okay, what tools are they using? And so we listed out three different tools that we thought an early adopter would have in that vertical. And if, if you use that tool, then we're going to try to sell you our tools. Well, we thought you, we were the next iteration for you. Nice. So, so I really like how you build that strategy. Uh, so you build the profile. And so and how did that pan out? Did that work very well? You guys had to adapt. Uh, your hypothesis was proven. How did that go? Yeah, it just takes a lot of digging. So we would hire some BDRs. I hired two BDRs, uh, salespeople, and pretty much all their job was we gave them a list of um, these different property management companies and brands in, in the market. And we said, start calling them and ask them, don't sell them anything. Just ask them, are you using this, this, and this tool? And once we did that, we compiled the list. We found out there's about 100 companies, uh, 100 hotels in that category. And then we just began the marketing efforts. So we said, okay, these are customers that we think are early adopters. Let's start messaging to them. And, and eventually we get one of those customers and two, and then three, and then four. And now we have 16,000. Wow. And is that still your biggest vertical today? Or from there, you start to you repeat the process to open other verticals for your product. How did it go? Yeah, so it is our primary vertical today. Uh, we have, so, you know, once you go into a vertical and you feel like you've built your moats, then you can start to look at other verticals. And, you know, since this is a horizontal tool, you know, we, we have been looking at other places that we can go. So now what we deploy is what we're calling a win and extend model. So you win the vertical, but then you extend through your customer's value chain. So, that can mean lots of different things, but what it means for us is that we're now extending through our, our customers. So, for example, Hyatt, uh, there are all the Hyatt hotels use our platform, uh, but one of the constituents that they deal frequently with is travel agents. So now we're seeing travel agents who are beginning to need our tool. And there's a network effect there because they need to be able to use the tool in um, conjunction with Hyatt. So now we're extending through Hyatt's value chain and selling as a travel agent. And we'll continue to extend in that model. That's amazing. Yeah, I love the model. I think that's an amazing device for everyone starting a SaaS product, like finding your vertical and then extend on the vertical. Even if you're building a horizontal product like you did, it's it's amazing because you can keep growing uh, that product. Uh, I, I love it. I, I love to talk about like how to get customers in this show. And I think we did a good job here. Thanks for your insight. I'd like to move on to other topics. So when you now we have a big organization, about 100 people. That's the size of the organization today, right? Uh, yeah, with 120 people, uh, you know, growing 30, 40 percent. We 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 did go through COVID, so for the event industry, it was a it was a pretty disaster. It was pretty difficult. But we actually, ironically, you know, we did grow about 10 percent per year through COVID. So you know, um, we were happy with that. But yeah. That's amazing. But what I want to ask you, who were like back in the day when you're starting your first hires? Now we have a company like of plus 100 people. And are any of those people still at the company today? Yeah, uh, we do still have some. We COVID kind of, we, we had some turnover during COVID. Um, but early on, you know, we've, we, we had a high retention rate. We had, I think, 92, 93%. Or, I mean, it was higher than that retention rate their employees. So we, we've had very little employees leave. Um, but now we're, you know, as we've been expanding, we're, not only hiring inside Chicago, but we're, we're hiring uh, around the country as well. So we're we have a hybrid model. We're primarily we have a primary office in Chicago, but if you choose to, if you want to join us, you can work from anywhere. Nice. So, so who, who was your first hire, and, and how was to build the first version of your product back in two thousand eight when you were doing? Yeah, our first hire was uh, a programmer. So you know we you know I was kind of like the sales guy. Um, so I'd hire programmers, kind of build stuff. So we go out 
to the customer if it was career builder and we kind of spec it out for them and then we'd have the the programmers and developers start to build it do you still feel like that was the right first hire for your SaaS, or would you do anything different yeah for me it was right because i'm not a programmer so but if you're a programmer you might want to hire a salesperson <laughs> we sure. want to build it and then have someone kind of try to solve it for you and that's awesome. And what is some of like the early mistakes that you made, like in those first that first year or or first two years that you you feel like other founders could avoid? They could maybe share with people. I, I think verticalizing probably a little bit earlier would have been better. Uh, I think we actually did verticalize a bit like early on. Uh, we you, we saw Salesforce becoming you know a really predominant CRM. And I think the mistake was that we confused Salesforce as a vertical and not just a platform. So, you know, we said, hey, anybody who uses Salesforce can use our tool theoretically, and which was true. You know, it was, it was an integration point, right? It was a tight integration point. But that was really difficult to sell to because there were all these different verticals with all these different requirements. So a medical customer can use Salesforce and they had HIPAA requirements. A financial service customer can use uh, Salesforce and they had workflow requirements. So there's just all these different requirements so we weren't able to kind of consolidate them and then scale that, right? Because the, the, the deal with software is you build it once and sell it many times. Yeah, so, so uh, it, that's pretty cool because it looks like we talk about horizontal and, ver and verticals, but there's one third way that you can kind of uh, specialize your software with a, with a platform. And that looks like that's what you try at the beginning because you can make a software, let's say, Everyone that use uh, Salesforce, and you could have a plugin or integration. You can do for Shopify. You can kind of like build on on the platforms that are out there. Which I agree with you. It's it's kind of like it could be great early on, but there's also the problem of the platform just decided that they don't like you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, it, it would, I, like from my take from what you say is just like you went platform first. You wish you had gone vertical first, but you never tried to go horizontal first, which which would be like very very hard. Very hard. You can do it. You can definitely do it. You just, you just it's going to take some capital, right? But it's a good done. You know, someone's got to do it. Yeah, I feel like the people that like what, go raise out that money. That's where they they have to play. And if you want to be a bootstrap, you should play as a, as a platform or a vertical at least in the early days. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm, I'm interested to see Salesforce's business in the CRM space because it's like what you said. It's funny. Every vertical I go into, they got their own CRM. Like you know, if you're in an auto repair shop, there's like an auto repair CRM. If you're, you know, medical, there's a medical CRM. If you're in hotels, hotels have their own CRM. They don't use, it's based on force.com platform, but I'd be curious to see what happens to the business. I think Salesforce is really big on the enterprise and the tech side. I think that's where they have a lot of success. Yeah, for sure. They might even have to verticalize themselves because like the last eight years running my consulting firm, I, I don't know how many CRMs 4X we built. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and most of them become very successful because everyone is just like, let me go take this market from Salesforce. Let me go take this market from Salesforce. Yeah. So I use horizontal plays or how long, I'm curious to see how that, you know, that really pans out for them, how long it really lasts. And so like you said, they're going to have to kind of somewhat verticalize it. Yeah. So what kind of like has been your biggest challenge to date? Yeah, I think I think it depends on the stage you're at, right? I think every stage of your business is different. So I think once you build it, you know, your challenge is to be scaling it, right? So finding some customers to buy it. And then once you find enough customers to buy it, you know, there is a lot of complexity into building a really good infrastructure too. So making sure that you're supporting your customers. And that's something that, you know, obviously these CRM providers do really well is they got a very 
you know, I, I would say that Salesforce is probably a big investment for them is make sure that their infrastructure is reliable and secure. So, and then once you get past that, then, you know, then once you've, you've built this really secure and reliable infrastructure, then you got to iterate quickly. You got to be innovative, but then that's hard to do when you're trying to, you know, you're, you're trying to make sure that you're very secure, and very reliable. Right. And those kind of things don't always go hand in hand. Um, so I say it's different stages. I think for us right now, it's just a lot of really just everyday execution, you know, making sure that we keep the trains running on time. Um, you know, we're talking to our right customers, or to the customers, we're making sure they're happy and, you know, attracting new ones. Yeah, I agree with you for, for sure. Each stage is going to have different challenges. And, and I guess because this show is about like helping people uh, learning about the early days of your SaaS, could you share a challenge from the early days, maybe with a story, how you went and how you guys solved that, that specific challenge? Oh, geez. I mean, which one? My gosh, there's so many of them. Um, I think early days, and yeah, I think early just kind of uh, build out the, the features and the, actually building out the platform is probably one of the easier things for us because we didn't have that much scale. So we could just iterate very, very quickly and build stuff. I think just getting customers, getting adoption and finding your place in the market. I mean, so, you know, in all fairness, there's probably, there's probably like 30 or 40 companies that were trying to do what we're doing. And, you know, eventually now there's probably like three or four. So you're going to have to compete too and there's gonna be winners and, and there's gonna be losers for sure I, I agree with you like finding finding the um that your place in the market and go back to kind of like the team they have been talking through through the whole show uh is a platform is a vertical it, it it is a horizontal what we're going to to where do you fit in the market and if you don't figure that out fast enough you're not going to be in the market at all <laughs> yeah i i know some providers that you know stayed and the other thing for us is that we never really we would never consider ourselves an east signature place so you know we always thought that it was more about the, the whole process right the whole closing process so the negotiation component the signing the contract the payment all those things and the workflows around that the signature was just kind of one thing that you do so we always looked at ourselves that way, and we were always looking at, at verticals that kind of needed more than just getting a contract signed. We thought that was, you know, somewhat simplistic, right? So then we had to find that vertical that needed it, and that's why travel and hospitality really fit us well. Because for them, if you're going to book a room, um, let's say they're going to have a party at Dave & Buster's, they're actually going to hold a room for you or, an, you know, a facility for you, right? And they're going to have some food and everything. And so getting a contract signed to them is not that valuable. What is valuable is getting the money. So they, they won't know that you're really serious and you really want to have that invent until they collect the, the, the cash. For sure. And that was the most important thing to them. So that's the part that we really helped them facilitate. Yeah, I, I think that's amazing. You need to understand what's the biggest pain that you were solving for a customer. And going far, further, when did you know that you have a thing, a product that people really love? At what point did you know that and that your company would last? Yeah, I, I think when you start to see the adoption happen a little bit quicker. So, you know, I was really surprised that like, we started having, you know, more and more customers. We, we had these advocates that would go out and talk about our solution. And I saw people posting it and, and I, I see leads coming in like, hey, I heard about you from so-and-so and this, this person said I should use you guys. And I'm like, okay, wow, this is really, you know, we're seeing this repetition happen, this repeatable, scalable sales process. I'm like, this is a good fit for this, for this market. Nice. So, so when you start seeing the organic growth and especially referrals, you start to feel, okay, we're building something that people yeah. love. Yeah, and, and gonna... It won't feel great. You won't, you won't feel like you're cruising. But once you see them, um, it's, it's, the momentum's starting to 
to go on your side there. And what was like your biggest fear when you're like in the first days of Certify? Well, it's funny you get into it and you're like so excited. You're like, boy, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the reality hits you, right? And it's just like, uh, yeah, I think the biggest fear is just, you know, failure, right? And I think that's always everybody's fear. Eventually, you just kind of fail. You know, and every, you know, and every day there's different fears. Systems not functioning properly. It's going to go down. Or you, 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 know, you can't you have enough money to make payroll. Um, customer cancellations, losing deals, whatever it is. So you're going to have lots and lots of failures throughout the time period, right? You just got to hope that you just have some successes. And then over time, those successes will compound. So how, how did you overcome, like, those fears? Like, it was just like, like you say, it was the success that were, like, more success than failures? Or what did you do to overcome your, your fears? Yeah, I think you just you just get up the next day and just kind of go at it again. Um, and that, that was kind of what we're talking about, we being bootstrapped, right? A lot of times if you're not bootstrapped, you, sometimes, the, you know, the clock just kind of winds down on you and you lose and you got to go. Um, but when you're bootstrapped, you're, you're in control of that. So you're like, okay, well, I, you know, we didn't really figure it out yesterday, but we can try to figure it out today. And so I think you just kind of keep going at it and just keep iterating, keep iterating, keep iterating. Um, and as, as long as your long-term vision and, and the product that you have – um, makes sense and is valuable to the market, you know, at some point, I think you will succeed. Yeah, for sure. Just stay long enough and, and stay also open-minded to, to make the changes that you need to make because through the show, we talk about a lot of changes that you have made through, through your business to get where you are today. So let's say you could go back in time and go back to 2008 when you start this business to meet yourself uh, and you have about an hour with yourself. Uh, what would you tell yourself in that hour? I would, you know, I, I, you know, ironically, I would, I would just tell myself, just have a lot of fun, just enjoy it. Um, some of the failures and the people that you meet will be the, the the greatest things for you. Those are the things that you will cherish the most out of the experience. Um, we, I just had, a, I, I look back now, and when we we're ten, twenty people, it's just a ton of fun. Um, we get to know each other. We. Um, did a lot of things together, had a lot of successes and a lot of failures together, but, you know, just enjoy the experience and you'll figure it out over time. So, so you wouldn't even try to give yourself advice. You'd just be like, how to <laughs> handle, bro. have fun, just have more fun. That's the number one thing you'd tell yourself. You wouldn't be like, hey, go to this vertical earlier. Just be like, okay, dude, have fun. <laughs> Is that correct? You know, advice would I give myself? I mean, it's just tough. You just got to kind of figure that stuff out. You just, you know, you just be really active and go out there and try to find the answers. Um, I don't think there's any like one piece of advice that I, I could have received that would have changed anything particularly, right? It was just kind of like these series of, of events and these series of, of decisions that eventually get you to your outcome. So, you know, sometimes like running a business, you know, you can make 50, 60 decisions a day and you'll make a lot of decisions. And those are very simple decisions. You know, how you respond to an email, how you respond to a customer, which customer you prioritize, um, how, who you hire, which resumes you're looking at. I mean, all these things that you do every day and on capital allocation as well, like where does the capital come from? What, who should I invest? What, who should I, what department should I invest into? And what shouldn't? What should I pull back? But And all those decisions that you do will actually eventually accumulate over time. So it's not one decision, right? It's accumulation of all these smaller little decisions. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway uh, from, from how you, you approach the talking with yourself, it is like, 
there's not one thing that we can tell an entrepreneur. It's about doing. You have to go do it and you're going to keep doing and you're going to be building the experience through the decisions that you make, to the experiences that you go through. So there's nothing that you could, there's no knowledge that you could just unload even for, for yourself in one hour. And, and that would make a huge difference, right? It, it is just about, there's all the learning that we can do. Of course, I, I know that you read a lot like me because you talk a lot about books uh, through this podcast, but in the end, there's no replacement for actually going and doing and spend the time and, and you're going to learn and you're going to get the experiences from the mistakes and from the things that you get it right. Right. So that's kind of like it's my takeaway from from your answer. Yeah. And I, you know, it goes back to what I think I said before, too. I think I would if I, if I guess I would say something, I say, hey, just focus on owning a small pond. Don't be scared that your market's small. You don't have to build something that's going to serve the entire world. Just focus on something an industry or a, or a market or, or a application that gets small and it's small. I think that's okay. And you'll grow from there. Yeah. I, I think that's an amazing advice for, for any early stage founder, you know, because sometimes you're afraid of going to his mom, but I think most times people actually make the mistake of going too big. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's so unlikely they're going to make the mistake of going to his mom. Uh, so what is like some, advice that you hear a lot in the SaaS space that you disagree with? I think there's, I think the markets, um, SaaS market, I think it's still growing. I think it's got a lot of room for growth. I am, I think, long-term optimistic about software and SaaS. I think the biggest, the biggest opportunity, right, and challenge at the same time for the market is going to be labor. So, we are going to see, you know, you, we've got some structural changes happening where the workforce participation rate, for example, is lowering. So there's not going to be as many people as a percentage in the workforce, which means businesses are going to have to learn how to automate a lot, a lot of things they do. So I, I saw that in manufacturing, and I think businesses like ours and yours and any business is going to have to figure out how to remove a lot of these repetitive, mundane tasks that they do every day. So if we can help them, if software if software will be able to help them do that. And so I think the opportunity is tremendous for all of us. But that's what I hear, and I think that's that's probably true. For sure. Uh, one thing that, that comes to mind now as, you, as you're talking about, like, the workforce getting smaller, uh, especially in, if we go back to VC fund companies, one of the metrics that they are looking at is headcount. Uh, and I think that's a wrong metric. Uh, you, you know, it's you should be looking at efficiency. How efficient are we? Uh, how can we do more uh, with automation? Because you're in the business of building software, and then we are saying that we need more, 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 more people. You're going to need more, more, more people. But can you? What can we do to optimize the ones that you have and to not lose the people that you have? I think maybe uh, that's kind of like insight to come to what you're saying. Uh, if we start to think about how the workforce is just get smaller, less people are participating. Yeah, I mean, I think that's this is a structural issue. We, we, we read about that right now where uh, companies are having a hard time finding people. I don't think that's going to change. I think it's always going to be a struggle to find qualified workers. So they're going to turn to us. They're going to turn to software providers right, to help them automate more. Yeah, I think that's definitely a huge opportunity for us software providers. And then there's a lot more SaaS to be built. And that's where I think those industry experts should start thinking about what SaaS should I build for my industry? Because, because that's going to be great. So we're getting to, to the end of the show and I have just two more questions uh, for you. Uh, the first one, it's 
what books do you think every founder should read? Yeah, I think those two books, I'd read uh, Zero to One. I think it's really important. Crossing the Chasm, it's a, a very important. Help you learn how to verticalize yourself, or at least how to get through the market adoption lifecycle. I think those are two great books to read. And what are you currently excited about and mo motivated by uh, your, uh, your business? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited. I'm really motivated about my business and about just the kind of industry as a whole and the opportunity in front of us. You know, I think this is going to be a time of massive innovation. Um, you know, we're lucky, our generation and even the, the younger generations are very lucky to be alive this time because I'm not sure that we other generation will have seen this much amount of progress and change as, as we have seen. So think about all these things that are going to start getting automated. I mean, even like... When I was a kid, I used to watch uh, a show called Knight Rider. Have you heard of it? <laughs> and I remember every Friday, this is what I would do. I just, I'd come home and I, I, I couldn't wait till 7.30 at night because Knight Rider was on. And it was about this car named Kit. And this guy would drive this black Trans Am. And it could talk and it could drive itself. Right? And, I mean, it's amazing for me to think that potentially in another 10 years, we'd be sitting in these autonomous vehicles. So there's going to be lots and lots of opportunity like that, uh, you know, kind of coming our way. And for us and in, in our business, what I'm really excited about is the iterations that are kind of happening with us. So we kind of started with a lot of contract and workflow automation for paper. But now we're really doing a lot more in financial services and helping people collect money quicker and easier. That's exciting for sure. Yeah, I do believe it's we are very, very early days uh, in the softer space, there's a lot more for us to keep getting mature. And I, I think the next 10 years, it, it's going to be amazing. And, and I do see those those big guys like Salesforce, like like about like getting disrupted because there's going to be space for, for new people to come into play and, to, and they're going to have to do something if they want to stay alive. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, sure. Awesome. John, it was amazing to have you in the show. I think we've got a, a, a lot of great insights. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Phil. It's great talking to you. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.